welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, and I'm Associate Professor of Medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to Season 2. This week on Plenary Session, you're in for a real treat. I'm joined via Google Meet by Dr. Andre Vandross, and you're not going to want to miss this discussion about Twitter, the online world, Twitter diets, and career switches. You won't want to miss this. But first, I have just a few thoughts on recovery. Stay tuned. This week, we got something that we were all excited to get. We got the preprint and supplement of the recovery trial, looking at the dexamethasone arm. And of note, everything that was stated in the statistical analysis plan, the protocol, and the press release was also confirmed in the preprint. And there was nothing so fundamentally important in the actual manuscript that it altered the take-home message for who benefits and who does not benefit from dexamethasone with COVID-19. Now, I noticed a bit of an irony. There was a New York Times story that pointed out that in the subgroup of hospitalized patients who did not require O2, that there was not, in fact, a statistically significant benefit, and if anything, a trend towards harm. And they said, see, this is a great example of why you need the full paper rather than the press release. When you have a full paper, you get to see things like this that you wouldn't have seen in the press release, the argument goes. Well, I thought it was a bit of astonishing hypocrisy because it reveals that the people who claim they need the full paper to read don't even have the time or energy to read the press release because the press release made it crystal clear that there were three subgroups and one of the three subgroups had a hazard ratio that trended the wrong direction and the other two had a very significant benefit and it got more beneficial if you were on the vent rather than merely receiving O2. So in fact, everything you needed to know was already in the press release, which you couldn't be bothered to read, which is about one page. And instead, you waited for a paper that I'm sure, wink, wink, you actually did read. Um, but uh, if you're the kind of person who won't read a one-page press release, are you really the kind of person who's going to read a preprint? So I think those people were wrong. And I think the take-home lesson is the same thing I talked about on the last episode, which is that it is um, easy to be duped in the modern world. And we've been duped a lot. And we're duped in part because we don't spend the time in medical education to train people to be resilient, um, to be good readers of the literature. And we're duped a lot. And it's easy when you're being duped a lot to take a stance of extreme cynicism and not believe anything. But the real virtue, value, I think, of reading studies and thinking about them more critically is to be able to go in with a surgical scalpel and separate press releases that are likely to be faulty, erroneous, exaggerated, or misleading from press releases that are likely to be truthful, reliable, and actionable as this was and remains. I forgot to say that this week is week three of four of our annual pledge drive. Now, of course, the pledge drive means you got to go on patreon.com and support this podcast. And you can sign up to give us a very small amount of money monthly, and it means a lot because that's the primary source of support for this podcast. If you don't want to do that, I understand. And instead, I'll ask you to go ahead and write a review for the podcast. You don't even have to write a positive review. Just write what you think. I'm curious. And if you like us, you could recommend us to a friend or colleague, particularly somebody in hematology oncology, because that's what we spend a lot of time talking about. So this is the third week I'm going to bother you, just one more week, and then you get a respite from the semi-annual pledge drive. 
In future episodes, I hope to talk to you about other topics. Somebody asked me to talk about a new HER2 antibody drug conjugate. Um, I've been reluctant to talk about it because I don't know what I'm going to say. It's an uncontrolled study, although the response rate looked promising. The people are likely the people who are enrolled in last-line uncontrolled studies, a very select group of people with generally slow, slower-growing tumors and more indolent biology, as in this study where they had received multiple lines of therapy, I think a median of six lines of therapy with some people receiving quite a bit more than that. And the primary outcome is response rate. I don't know if people live longer or better. And it probably wouldn't have taken them much more time to run a randomized control trial with a primary endpoint of overall survival, pitting the best investigator choice in the United States of America against the investigational agent. But of course, that's not the world we live in. We live in a fragmented world. And if you want a real rich discussion of the problems of cancer drug approval, I will refer you to the Malignant Audiobook, which is now out on Audible. And now, for people who listen to Malignant Audiobook, you will not have to listen to me, glug, glug, glug water. That's been cleaned up. And instead, you get the pure listening pleasure of Malignant. And on that positive note, we're going to turn to our interview with Dr. Andre Vandross. Well, I'm joined in plenary session via Google Meet by Dr. Andre Vandross. Andre should need no introduction for listeners of this program. He's been a frequent guest. I think he's been on twice before. Let me tell you a little bit about Andre's background. Um, Andre is a hematologist and oncologist. He did his medical oncology and hematology training at the UCLA Cancer Center. He recently made a career switch, which is one of the topics we're going to talk about uh, on this podcast. Andre is a graduate of the University of Chicago Medical School. He did his internal medicine training at Yale, and he is now in San Antonio, Texas, and soon to be in Austin. We're going to talk about that. Andre, it's a pleasure to have you here on the podcast. Very happy to be back. Happy to be back. You know, you're a podcast connoisseur. Is that fair to say? <laughs> a dilettante. A dilettante. You, but but you're somebody who ingests podcasts. You listen to a lot of podcasts. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you don't just paper. listen to podcasts that tell you things you already know and feel. You're willing to listen to a lot of podcasts that tell you things you don't agree with, that you don't believe in, that push you a little bit. Is that fair to say? Yeah, definitely fair. Yeah. You're a fan of the long form. You don't get turned off like these, you know, these people write to me and they say, you know, I, I don't like your podcast. It's two hours. I want a 20 minute thing. I say, you want a 20 minute thing? You know, go to McDonald's. Here you're going to have a leisurely three-course meal. You know what I'm saying? This is a different type of podcast. And you're somebody who I know you don't mind when it gets to two, three hours. Is that fair to say? No, I absolutely love it. There's no way to hear, well, if you're interested in nuanced opinions and arguments, then that's the only way to do it as far as I'm concerned. As far as I, I agree. And I also think it's the only way to hear some people who are famous. Because when you listen to their 20-minute shtick, it's always the same stuff they're saying. When you talk them, talk to them for two hours, they finally say something they don't always say. They often betray how they really feel. Right. And I've been um, surprised in that regard where you can <laughs> you say, it's like, oh, they're not as crazy as I thought. So, right. um, yeah. And in addition to podcasts, you are also somebody who is, as they would say, a lurker. You spend some time yeah. on social media. Yes. Very much a lurker. Right. And actually, right now, I'm actually um, doing a full sort of diet uh, right now. Yeah, let's probe that a little bit. So, I mean, you told me the other day on the phone that you were taking a Twitter diet. 
And and this is something you advise other people to do too. And you gave me some advice, which is uh, you're using it too much. Uh, and I deleted it off my phones uh, because you were right. You were hitting the nail on the head. Um, but when you when you talk about taking a social media diet, um, you you use that word choice carefully because a diet doesn't mean that you're not eating, um, but it does mean you are more cautiously consuming something, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So like I definitely use it to keep up with, uh, not obviously not exclusively, using it to keep up with the medical literature, what, pe- what are people talking about in oncology, what are people talking about in medicine in general. Um, in addition to those feeds, I've also curated, um, you know, topics that are outside of medicine. Um, there are some things that are, that overlap. Um, needless to say, we've got a lot of COVID. Um, we also have the tragedy uh, uh, in Minneapolis and others like mm-hmm. it, and it has been getting a bit too much um, for me. I mean, to the point where it sort of crossed over to even email updates from uh, other news sources that might have a video to show or something like that. And so um, at some point I just knew that I was ready again <laughs> to sort of take a, a little bit of break because um, um, there's only so there's only so much you can ingest, digest, um, think about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, I understand the sentiment and, uh, and, you know, I understand that no matter what the issue is, when there are a few issues that are just really hot and in the news, um, there gets a point where no matter how I am, how deeply sympathetic I am, how much I agree with a lot of the sentiment, there comes a point where I need a break because I just can't see it anymore. And um, and I think that's particularly true on some topics. Um, why don't we Why don't we talk a little bit about COVID nineteen now? You want to talk about something on Twitter where people <laughs> people lost their marbles. Uh, <laughs> I think it's COVID nineteen. I mean, when we go back to March, I mean, there. I don't think you there was even a single tweet that didn't have COVID in it. COVID no. SARS CoV two. Uh, it, it, it was it was as if it wasn't. You were not permitted to not discuss COVID. You're, that's right. I mean I, I mean, I understand that. I understand it. It was brand new. I was, I was nervous. Lots of people were nervous. Um, but it, it, it would have been nice even at that time to get a little uh, better mix. And, and in some respects, some of the, the content that I curate um, uh, would allow for that a little bit of break here and there, but it, it, it paled in comparison to the volume of, of, um, the the emerging new expertise in COVID. New expertise. Every every specialty. It ends up being a subspecialty type of thing. (laughs) That's right. I mean, everyone was, you know, as as I changed my profile to SARS-CoV-2 experts in 2017, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I did that. I did that because suddenly everyone was a SARS-CoV-2 expert since 2017. Um, But, you know, to really kind of probe on social media, the reaction I got for that little change, I think, speaks volumes. Um, You might remember a gentleman took me to task. He said that I was guilty of an act of fraud, in fact. (laughs) And he said since I had so many followers that he, in fact, could file class action litigation against me for declaring myself. But uh, unlucky for this little gentleman, unlucky for this gentleman, I had been doing work 
spelunking in the caves of China <laughs> doing bat research <laughs> since at least 2015. I had been doing bat research, so I was squeaky clean in my assertions. But, you know, you. so how do you feel about this? That, um, you know, I mean, isn't it the issue, isn't the real thing there that when COVID hit, it's understandable that a lot of us are anxious, but some mm-hmm. of us broadcast that anxiety on social media. And I think that's what we were seeing on Twitter to a large degree, smart doctors broadcasting their anxiety. Yeah. And the, the, and because we know that like a lot of us will deal with things in, in, in different ways. And especially with like consuming a lot of information, trying to process, trying to help. Right. So like a lot of people want you know, actually want to make the effort to help and sort of like provide predictions, um, specific recommendations about how to manage patients. And so, um, which ends up being a little confusing because I thought that was like, oh, I, I thought that we were all sort of like on the on the, the front end of this in, in the sense that, you know, we don't have a lot of information. Mm-hmm. So it was very curious that like there were a lot of recommendations being generated anyway mm-hmm. regarding how deal with individual patients and things like that. But again, I know it's coming from, I mean, I know I can understand it's coming from a good place. And especially given that it's such a, or at least purportedly an egalitarian forum um, for people to be able to weigh in and actually be help and be of help and be of service, essentially, mm-hmm. to the larger community, because we can even talk global community. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I can understand why the efforts uh, were, were being made. I see. You're very kind. You're very kind to these people. <laughs> now, let me ask you, when you open your Twitter feed, what percent of your Twitter feed are folks tearing their rotator cuff, patting themselves on the back? And then what percent are people being outraged about word choice among other users? So how do you divide it? If you if you take away the the self-congratulations and then the, the just the the overt acts of of being a sycophant and you take away the just absolute outrage at the at the punctuation error of someone else, what's what's in the middle there? What's the sweet spot that you're actually going for? <laughs> the sweet spot. I actually want to go and see people uh, talk about new trials, talk about the ethics of um, releasing data without a full paper behind it, mm-hmm. um, making claims about the success of a new medication um, without the full paper for all of us to review. Um, you actually, believe it or not, got me to come around on the 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 the, the thought that your debates are for the third party, and <laughs> mm-hmm. um, more than they are to convince the other person that they're wrong, even though that that's sometimes the perception that you know outside observers can get. But indeed, I have had experiences where I'm you know watching a debate unfold. And obviously things that I haven't thought of are going to be brought up and, you know, it can inform or help me guide my decision on where I'm going to land on a particular issue. So anyway, that's that's actually what I would like to see when I go. I especially, I think I said to you recently that it's always interesting to watch people essentially, well, why am I going to say people? Let's see, you go to battle with There is people on Twitter, and then sometimes I'll actually notice that you don't actually disagree on what you think you're disagreeing on. Yeah, and yeah. That's always interesting, too. So, and it's, it's pain, honestly, it's painful to watch. Yeah, no, it's painful to watch and worse to experience, as a wise man once <laughs> told me. Um, but, you know, Andre, I've got a little bit of a, this is a preprint that just came off the server right here. 
Um, it's a fresh preprint. And this is what it says. It says, when you look at a thousand articles under hashtag med Twitter, approximately 1.3% have anything to do with medicine. Is that a fair, is that a fair piece of data? (laughs) (laughs) But don't you feel that there's some truth to that erroneous statistic I've just invented that in fact, um, there's a lot of it that's not really medicine. You know, you're talking about the things you're looking for. They're all things that speak to you as sort of your career. Um, but you know, I know you, you have other interests. You're interested in, in, in entertainment, show business, in sports. You know, you, you've played a lot of football in your life. You're interested in so many things, but when you go to Twitter, that's not what, what you're looking for there. You're not, you're not going yeah. to Twitter for sports, right? You're not going to Twitter for, um, even politics. You get that from, I think the podcast, you get that from the news. Um, you're going there for the, the channel and that, you know, the TV channel that you don't have in your life, which is, um, or, or at least elsewhere, which is people talking about this professional interest of yours. Is that fair to say? Oh, absolutely. And especially since um, I'm more sensitive to it now because I, you know, as you know, I've moved outside of the academic circle. And, you know, one of the things I think that I will miss is sort of just having access to, you know, lots of different physicians have lots of different opinions. Um, um, being able to go to conferences, uh, presentations, um, um, outside of going to, uh, the larger conferences, like, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. NPR, uh, ASCO, so on and so forth. So, um, so yeah, and in terms of like having a really specific idea of what I want to get out of Twitter, like that, you know, that it, that's it. And, um, cause I've actually even designated it as like, I just consider it part and part, you know, just part of, uh, my development and ongoing sort of maintenance, knowledge maintenance um, as a physician and oncologist. Yeah. Sure. I think you and I have the same, you know, I mean, it's it's unspoken, but we're going in it for the same reason, because that's why I go there, despite all the, you know, frequent headaches I get, which is that every once in a while, I get somebody say something that interests me about this mm-hmm. very narrow thing that I don't really get to hear those opinions that often, which is oncology, yeah. clinical trials, medicine, when do you trust a press release? When do you not? Those kinds of topics, the ethics of medicine, the the social political forces of medicine, drug approval, drug development. You know, I mean, just today, Walid Jalad, um, what did he say? I, I'm I'm going to be blanking. Oh, I'm going to. Ah, so I hate that when people say that. But anyway, he said something that I thought was really spectacular. And it's hard for me oh. to remember in the moment. Um, uh, but um, but it's not the first time he said something that I thought was spectacular, but it was something that I had genuinely not thought of, even though I had thought mm-hmm. about that topic a lot. And I was like, gosh, that's a breath of fresh air to go there and get a little nugget like that. Um, you know, something that pushes your thinking a little bit. Um, but that's not what I get a lot of. I mean, let me tell you what I get a lot of. Um, I get a lot of, you know, here's here's something that I might tweet. I was like, you ran a non-inferiority trial and the margin was quite large. In fact, the upper bound of the margin was so large um, that you really don't know if this thing is non-inferior. And then I'll get an immediate comment. You know what is inferior? Your opinion on soft targets. That's inferior. <laughs> I get that. I get that. That's your, uh, that's inferior. Or then, you know what else somebody might say is, you know what is inferior? Your thoughts on cancer screening and mammography. (laughs) Okay. So here's my question for you. What possesses somebody to like, you know, we're not talking about that right now. And I don't know who, I don't know who you are. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you do. I don't know who you are. But you're apparently so troubled by a view that I've previously expressed on a different topic 
that you want to take this opportunity to just bring it back there and get back into that anger mode you were in when you read whatever it is I said that you didn't like. You want to bring yourself emotionally back to that state. And what do you think I'm what do you think I'm gonna say? Oh, I've changed my mind on this old topic. <laughs> is that what I mean, what do you what are you gonna get from me? Are you gonna get a are you gonna get like, you know, the sign the kind of um praise and adulation you didn't get um some point in your life that you're craving? I mean, I'm not gonna give that to you. So um I don't know. What do you think about the? I mean, you have noted this behavior. This is a note. This is a phenomenon. Right. And it's not, but the, I guess. Um, oh, spit it, it out. Have a sip of your your beverage and spit it out. <laughs> <laughs> no, what I mean, the thing that I'm thinking about is actually what I want to say is yeah. that like it's it's not new. Um, it's so I, I just want to say that like so you know my background like you know I'm the first in my family to go to college and also. And certainly to get an advanced degree, I had like all of these like lofty uh, ideas about what it was like, what it was going to be like to be in academia and the type of arguments that get made and the type of debates that are had and civility regarding those debates and actually debating the topic at hand. Right. Um, I, and so I was actually surprised, like, you know, so as I moved along um, in my education to find that, oh, well, you know, even these really smart people have a hard time um, staying on topic. And so the question is, what, you know, why is that? And, you know, people that are much smarter than me look at things like this, but it's, you know, one of the things I think about a lot is just like how we end up getting tied into the things that we believe. Um, and, um, some of the things that we believe have something to do, may or may not have something to do with our core values. And the reason why that's important to think about is because like, yeah, why does the bell get rung so loudly in this person's head that their response is going to be, you know, really angry, off topic, unfocused, and it doesn't actually add to moving, you know, moving. So if there's to be a dialectic, it's just not going to be able to, you know, get the footing it, 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 that I would hope and that what everyone else is sort of waiting and hoping for so that they can understand how to think about the problem at hand. Um, so I, again, it's one of those things where I'm sort of going to sort of like walk the line and say, I can understand how it happens. Um, but uh, I mean, beyond that, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not certain of, you know, why that would be except to, except to know that like, it's not really new and uh, we might see it a lot now because of, you know, and I'm sure and people talk a lot about like the different reasons why on, on social media in particular, this might be a little bit more common, but. I think if I can put words in your mouth, what you're, what you, which I love to do, um, you know, what you're, what you're not saying is that, I mean, maybe perhaps to some degree, one of the great disappointments in your academic journey was that as someone who is the first in your family to go to college and the first in your family to get an advanced degree, one has an impression of what the level and sophistication and quality of arguments in the academy must be like from the outside. And I think to some degree, I had the same thing, which is I expected it to be a very high level, people focused on the issue, pounding the central thesis, you know, really going for the jugular of debate. 
And, yeah. and, and, you know, how did I learn to debate? I never, I was no debate society. I mean, this is, debate is what you have around the dining table or with friends, you know, and, and, you know, when you're just talking, that's, that, these are all debates. But when you go to the academy and you expect it to be at a certain level and it's not, and it's just at a really amateur hour level, it's really crushing. It's a disappointment. It's sad. And, um, and again, it's like, you know, even though we were talking about, we were talking about Twitter, it's just sort of like, obviously, like, I've curated um, my feed such that, like, obviously, like, a big proportion of people that I follow are in academics. Um, um, and then, obviously, there are plenty of people that are outside and and um, that can contribute to the conversation. And so, but anyway, as, as we just mentioned, it it was it's it was really sad. It was you know, but also it was my fault of <laughs> thinking that it yeah, was going to be. Yeah, I know that's it's my fault um, too. I yeah, I know. Like what I was going to be getting or witnessing, and and you know it can and obviously it can happen from time to time, but it's it's just overall it's just sort of like oh no, they're like everybody else. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, that's what I felt like when recently I was listening to some oncologist argue about you know I, I don't want to name too much because I don't want to make this person feel bad because I don't think they're an isolated example of the problem. I think they're part of a systemic problem. I mean, but the argument was basically another FDA drug approval with, you know, horrible data, the worst data, inconclusive data, data that if I actually go and counsel a patient about the patient's going to have a million questions, I'm never going to answer because we're never going to have the randomized trial. And the drug costs a fortune and has side effects. And, you know, we're debating whether or not the FDA should approved it. And then this person's argument is that, you know what, without this drug, we know what's going to happen. There's a 100% risk of a bad outcome. With this drug, we, we believe that it's better than that bad outcome. And the cost, it shouldn't enter our mind at all. We have nothing to do with cost. Um, so therefore, we should support it. And then I asked this person, okay, this drug was approved, um, you know, in a certain way, but there are a few people who the drug was not approved for, and in that group of people, the response rate wasn't zero. There was still something. So mm -hmm. by your logic, you should approve it in that group too, because as you said, if it's we know what's going to happen without it, and if it's anything other than that, it doesn't matter what the cost is, it doesn't matter how many people have to be given the drug unnecessarily – you should support it. Do you support it? And this person will not answer the question because, <laughs> because they know. I mean, they know what the question is. The question is check. And the next move is checkmate because they know where I'm playing. I mean, maybe they don't know, but they get a bad feeling. They don't want to answer my question. Um, I get a lot of that on Twitter. Um, you know, when, and, and that to me is why I don't think debating is not for the other person because they won't mm -hmm. let you get to that second you know they'll flip the key they'll flip the chessboard before they'll let you get put them in check right um debating is for the crowd it's for the person out there who can be persuaded but you know i want to beat on about the issue that really irritates me which is um you know I have a set of rules. You know, I'm, I'm somebody who cares about reversals, things we do that don't work, you know, low-value medical practice, making better medical decisions. And when I think about my limited time, because I have limited time, I know I can't cover all the nonsense in the world. I got to pick and choose. And how do I pick? So, one, um, who pays? If something is paid for by insurance companies, I'm much more likely to look at it than if something if you choose to spend your own money. Because you know mm. what? You might go to some um, movies that I don't care for. Or you might spend your money in other ways. It's none of my business, really, how you spend your own money. Two, what are the harms? Are the harms, like, severe or are the harms mm. trivial? Like, say, cupping. 
Um, what's the risk to other people? Is it high, like an infectious disease, like vaccines and like COVID? Or is the risk to others minimal, like low back pain? Um, Mm -hmm. Is the procedure invasive or non-invasive? And then the next thing is, what's the cumulative payment burden? You know, how common is this? Is this a huge budgetary issue? Um, And then Mm -hmm. finally, does it utilize my specific skill set? You know, I'm a doctor who's trained all these years to be able to understand something that not a lot of people have that privilege of having done all that training. So I really want it to be something that utilizes my skill set. So when I make this calculus, and this is something that's, you know, there's a word, it's value of information theory. It's basically a way to prioritize what to spend your limited time on. When I make this calculus, you know, people who spend a lot of time criticizing soft targets like acupuncture and cupping uh, on the internet with snarky remarks, which is really what a lot of the accounts do, um, that scores very, very poorly on my metric. And especially if the person has an MD, PhD, and is a surgeon or something ridiculous like that, um, transplant surgeons, uh, you know, (laughs) uh, many degrees, um, I, I think that it is not the best use of their time. Now, that position has brought me a mountain of ire on social media. <laughs> a mountain of anger. That's the thing that if I'm talking on Tuesday about the sky being blue, people are going to pull me back to, and by the way, you said soft targetism was a waste of our time. They're going to pull me back there. Okay. Yeah. One, is my view so off the, is it so unacceptable? Two, why? who are they trying to persuade? They're not persuading me. And, and I believe I've articulated my view rather clearly. Um, who are they persuading? And three, um, why are they so angry? <laughs> the answer to why anyone is so angry, I have no idea. <laughs> and so dispense with that quickly. And the, in terms of, so why do it? I, I don't know. I, I, I'm starting to think about going back to, there's the issue with engaging in those discussions that is, uh, low value care that, yeah. you know, we said, it, it, you know, those issues, the cupping and herbal medicines and things like that, you know, I, I guess I'll never say that it's not important to at least make a comment to say that at a minimum that like, we just don't have a lot of information. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right. The obvious. Yeah. Right. That's what you say. And, 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 and I was able to sort of stake out um, how I felt about that based on, you know, taking care of patients um, um, during training and now. Because there are a lot of, so first thing is that I would rather have a patient tell me that they're taking some or doing some of these things than not, you know, if they're on like low dose, high dose aspirin, I've got them on anticoagulation and right. they're doing the and I want to know right? Um, so that I can actually make an intervention. Um, the other thing is, is that like people really invest a lot, um, patients and, and, you know, other people, um, or everyone can be a patient. They invest a lot in some of these therapies as an alternative to, um, as an alternative to what we do every yeah. day. And so, as we know, it just sort of like as as the time goes on, you know, people have mistrust of the medical uh, establishment for various reasons, historical and otherwise. And so, they it, there's this tendency to think of doing something outside of what we do as better or inherently, you know, it's natural. It's right. you can use all the the buzzwords that you want and able to sort of uh, think that it's going to be better. So anyway, there's something tied deeply in that core value thing 
And so the reason why I think that that, that is important because it will minimize the amount of debate that I'm willing to engage in, mm-hmm. especially one-on-one. So if I'm not going to do it one-on-one, I don't know that I would do it on a forum where I can reach billions of people That's and so think well that put. I'm going to make any headway. That's so um, well put. And, you know, if I'm perfectly honest, part of my, you know, an, an additional sort of motivating factor for me is my clinical experience, which is like yours. You know, as an oncologist, you know, you don't have we try to make as much time as we can, but often we wish we had more time. You know, that's just the nature of medicine, right? Um, And the the number one goal in your mind is taking this person and helping them make the right choices to really maximize their health and well-being. That's my number one goal. And so often I encounter somebody who they tell me that, you know, part of what they're doing, they're working with a naturopath or they're working with somebody else. And I really want to know that, as you say, because I want to make sure there's no interactions, there's nothing going to affect me. But when they ask me, what do I think about that? Do I endorse that? You know, I will say what you say, which is that, you know, I'm not convinced. There's not a, a lot of information out there, but I don't, I'm very careful not to scold or draw a very hard line. You're nodding because because you know, you, you, the moment you put your, the moment you really anchor in on this issue, if you want to die on this hill, that person will never come back to your office again. And you're going to lose everything you could do for this person because you have angered them in a way. And so it's exactly as you say, I know that people feel strongly about this. And if it's not so harmful, if it's their own money, it's not a lot of money, it's their own choice. And it's not going to interfere with what we're doing. You know, that's not the hill I'm going to die on. It's going to be when it, when somebody's declining therapy that I know to be of benefit, you know, when they're, when they're, um, uh, and because they don't understand it, I, I, I'm going to do my best to, you know, explain as much as I can. When I feel like they're making a choice in a, in a fit of anger, I'm going to ask, you know, take a, take a couple days and we'll call, I'll call you on the phone. You know, those are the kinds of things that I'm willing to kind of save that capital for, but, but, but to, but to to blow the the capital, the sort of the human capital that you build up with somebody on this issue, I think is just like I, that's what makes me wonder about some of these doctors. I like, are they really seeing patients? Because ha, you can't go in spitting fire like that in a patient and expect to ever <laughs> see that person again. You're out of your mind. You're out of your mind. You so, think- some people do though. Spit, and, yeah, and so right. they do. Like in the in the room, and it's very uncomfortable. Yeah, and then they write <laughs> lost to follow up in the chart. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. So um, that's why it's just like I would rather, you know. Also, I'll add that I think about the fact that, so, you know, what we call building rapport is essentially boiled down to like, is this person going to trust you to administer really toxic medications to them? Right. In the hope that they're going to right. treat their cancer right. and not and not kill them in the process. Right. Um, so the moment you, I think it's a breach of trust if you do some of the things that you're talking about, scold, yeah. sort of like, and then what is the other underlying thing when you tell people, not to, you know, you know I feel like, you know, I have a lot of facial expressions. It's like, you can't like, you know, you know, what if you like accidentally like roll your eyes like when someone's telling you that they're doing a certain thing you undermine their trust frankly. oh yes oh yes and yes interesting and in, in the relationship and they're not going to be forthcoming or like you said they just won't come back to you and, and that's not where we want to be and so that's that's that you know that's another reason why so it's just like you know did the <laughs> you know, i did the uh, back of the napkin, uh, back of the envelope calculation and it's it, it is not worth putting people off on frankly you know, I, maybe maybe part of my experience on that is shaped by 
having people, family members who are irrational. And for years, I I'm really good at, you know, you go to a dinner at somebody's, uh, you know, an extended loved one's family and they're saying crazy things. And you're like, you know, yeah, I could I could take them to task. But you know what? What what good is that going to do? Let's just keep it cordial. Let's redirect. Let's redirect. Let's go. You know. Yeah. But that's that's okay. So on Monday, that's my Monday. My Monday is getting this person criticized. (laughs) Okay, here's my Tuesday. There's a different person out there, and it's always the same person. It's always the same few people. This different person, they they they're really up in arms about the the survival benefits of mammography. Now. There are a lot of people who feel strongly about cancer screening. And, you know, what really irritates me about it is that why won't they just acknowledge that when it comes to all-cause mortality, the most important thing, they don't have the data. And so if you don't have the data, you can't say it saves lives. It's just so simple. I, my question for you is, why are you against saving lives? <laughs> oh, exactly. That's, that's yeah, the response. Look, and I, I don't... <laughs> I, why am I against I it? Yeah, I guess... <laughs> that's, that's, the, that's the bottom line because it's, you know... I, I mean, I guess it's... I guess one way to think about the way that people might be framing this in their own minds is that, like, even with intention, that's got to be worth something, right? So if you're looking for the cancer, you're really trying to avoid, you catch it early, like, that's just the principle, um, that's the language that gets used. Maybe right. if we caught it earlier, right. that's what people want to know when they get the notice. Oh, maybe I shouldn't have ignored that indigestion. Right. Um, so that type of thinking doesn't disappear when we become physicians. Hmm. Um, so I don't think that we're operating. So I think we're on different wavelengths when you're having the discussion. And, and that's one of the things I also I noticed as well, where it's like, you know, aside from, you know, I mentioned earlier about not disagreeing in reality, but you're going back and forth about a particular issue. And then the other thing is, is are you actually having a debate about what you think you're debating about? Mm, because mm-hmm. it's like, it might be about the fact that like, I, you know, it, in, on the inside, it's just like, I just can't believe that identifying a cancer earlier would not lead to saving a life that's it that's it that's it on the inside they feel that so strongly i just cannot believe that identifying early will not lead to saving a life and there's nothing you can say otherwise it'll convince me i I have to i have to think that that's that's what it is and so and in in some respects i have to actually work against thinking that way and so when i'm having discussions with patients about it i actually tell them that this is debate this is a debate that we're that we have in the medical community and i include that as part of you know, since it's, you know, it's, it's you know, uh, shared decision making, but, you know, uh, you know, a lot of people want a recommendation to be made. So I try to incorporate that in the conversation and also get a sense of, you know, do they have strong feelings about screening versus not screening? If they don't, if they really, really want to want me to make the recommendation, um, um, I will do so based on the information that I was able to gather tacitly from them during the conversation. But anyway, that's that's a tangent from where we were, which is just sort of like where people coming from. I think that again, it's that it's that core belief that if it's rejected, it it just your world collapses if you admit that 
identifying cancer early doesn't actually change the amount of time that you live. Yeah, I think I think you're right. It's that core belief. And it's really they feel it's people feel very strongly. And so that no amount of your nerd data, no amount of, <laughs> of analysis will ever persuade. Okay, let me ask you this. Um, you're somebody who's made a career switch, and this is something that I think listeners are going to be very interested in. Um, you you graduated from UCLA in 2017, um, and you stayed on on the faculty in um, in sort of a, a hybrid position, which you can talk about and explain what you were doing. Um, mm -hmm. And then just about six months ago, you made a big jump. One, you decided you didn't believe in state income tax, and so you fled to Texas. <laughs> <laughs> Which I that was don't. Post hoc. Yeah, I don't. Well, I don't blame you for that. Um, and uh, you moved to Texas, and you joined a group called Next Oncology, where you're really honing your skills and maybe building a little bit more of a skill set in running phase one clinical trials. So this is a real, yeah. this is a career switch. And this is, um, you know, I, I would say this is a fairly early, you know, early career switch. So I guess I wonder if you might talk us through, you know, when you came out of fellowship, what were you thinking? And when you started looking, what were you thinking? So I'll back, just quickly back up a little bit farther than that. Like, I remember, like, I, so as an undergraduate, I had, uh, experience doing some, um, actually organic chemistry, organic synthesis, and that's where I really got the research bug. I thought that I would want to actually have a lab as a physician. I didn't know what that really looked like, but I knew I wanted to go to medical school. The mentor, My mentor that I had at the time, um, you know, he, he said, no, I'll just go and get a PhD. But, you know, anyway, I sort of followed my nose and continued to get experience doing science. The point of this is, is that, like, I wanted to do research of some sort. So, one, mm -hmm. so let's go back to fellowship um, in which, you know, I was setting up and preparing as early as sometime in second year to expected, expecting to be able to stay on and be primarily doing, um, you know, doing phase one trials in, in folks with hematologic malignancies. Um, a position wasn't available I, for, for that type of position mm -hmm. um, specifically. I was able to stay on doing general hematology and oncology. Um, and in the end, I just sort of tried to look ahead um, five to 10 years and say, do I want to be doing this um, um, in particular? And I, I, you know, I realized that like, no, I need to make a change. There were certain things that I really, really wanted to do and it isn't wrong <laughs> to want those things. Right. And to try to make the move now before it's too late. I, 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 was, I felt a sense of urgency about it. So the things that I wanted, I wanted to, I, you know, I clearly defined for myself so that when I was, you know, looking for positions, I would be able to clearly articulate them. One was that I wanted to have some expertise. Um, um, I was thinking more about, uh, you know, sort of tumor type, you know, leukemia versus multiple myeloma versus breast cancer, uh, things like that. I wanted to have room for growth and really sort of have an opportunity to take a leadership role, like a true leadership role and help shape, you know, where the organization is going and also 
uh, be able to and then the third thing was to be able to you know participate in research and really sort of try to uh, have a hand in where the field is going. Um, those are the things that I envisioned having for myself uh, being with an academic. So that's how I ended up uh, making the switch. So it sounds like you have a very clear idea. I mean, I guess I would say that, you know, the commendable part is that I think it's easy to feel dissatisfied with your position. It's hard to articulate why. And it sounds like you took the sure. work and you spent the effort to articulate what it was in your job you didn't have that you wanted. And then also what would be the minimum requirements from a job that you'd be satisfied with knowing no one's going to get their you know, full wish list. Sure. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and I knew that if I was going to have the courage to actually make the move that I would have to have those clear, you know, it's just like having, you know, having, you know, having a set of standards, um, it makes it easier to sort of make a move if you need to, I think. I see. I think that's key. And so, so you found this position next oncology, which is a relatively new company. Um, and mm -hmm. it's, it's led by, by Tony Tolcher, who is a, a, a well-known and well-respected uh, clinical trialist, phase one trialist. And, and you're mm -hmm. really hitting, um, you know, in the, you're, you're part of the foundation of the company, getting this up and running, running phase one clinical trials in an oncology setting. Um, and it's really, a, a, it sounds like a balance of both um, talking to companies, educating companies sometimes they need a little bit of education and hand-holding um and sure. and uh, running really good clinical trials and taking good care of patients so um how are you finding it how, how's the job going so it's great i'm in my training period right now um i am you know each day i get confirmation that i really made the right choice um i am learning way more than i ever expected um, with regard to you know, uh, clinical oncology, phase one trials, um, the interests of all of the, oh, I hate this word, stakeholders. Stakeholders. Um, <laughs> but I, but, stakeholders. But everybody, yeah. knows, but everybody knows what it means. Yeah. Um, knows, yeah. Um, so, um, you know, no, I'm, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. I'm really looking forward to growing. And, I mean, the anchor is the fact that, you know, you know, I get to continue to take care of patients who, who have cancer. And also, um, one of the things that I felt was my strength in oncology was just having the tough discussions with people, um, not just about treatment, but um, also about deciding when we're not going to be actively uh, treating the cancer. That may sound strange in the setting of clinical trials, mm -hmm. but it's actually very important um, because these are, these are conversations that we're not afraid to have. And, uh, you know, we have to have them on a regular basis. Um, we work in conjunction with the referring physician sometimes to um, help, you know, come together with the patient to decide, you know, what, when is going to be the right time to, to, you know, not pursue any further treatment of the cancer um, uh, in particular and just look and transition into, support, you know, supportive care, uh, pain management and exclusively, I should, I should say. So, I see. Um, Having that as the foundation, mm. and then knowing that I'm going to have a hand in, um, you know, evaluating protocols, um, helping the, the the companies to uh, streamline their protocols so that we can have, you know, potentially a more inclusive population, uh, different types of patients who may or may not benefit from the drug down the line. Mm. So 
um, there's a you know there's a lot to say about like the things that I'm learning, but I'll just leave it at the fact that like you know like I said I uh, get confirmation every day that I made the right decision, and also that you know I'm learning way more than I even ever expected wow. about yes. what, what it takes to do the, do this well. Mm, that's that that sounds like a good move. Now I guess I'm I'm curious. Um, you know, when you were in training that you, like me, must have witnessed um, some doctors engaging in informed consent for clinical trials. Mm-hmm. And and I bet some of them did it well, but I bet all of them didn't do it well. All of them must not have done it well, Andre. <laughs> well, yeah, that's uh, to be expected, at least as far as I'm concerned. And when they didn't do so, it well, what did what did they do wrong? So I think the problem with informed consent is that, um, all right, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but it's just going back to, so here's the the frame of mind that I think, you know, some of us may be in. What other reason would I be in this office as an oncologist if it is not to give you a drug that's going to help you live longer? So when the informed consent is discussed, I think it's a given that they're going to be helped. We use the words that, oh, we don't know if it's going to help. There was a 30% response rate. There was an overall survival benefit. We say those things, but, um, and especially in the context of the the clinical trial, um, but people here, but people here, you're going to help me. Correct. Yeah. So I think that's like one of the things that, um, we have to pay attention to. And so it's been interesting, be, again, because I'm doing phase one now, I have to make sure that I pay closer, even more uh, attention to how I'm doing this um, because I have to make sure that ex- expectations are, you know, are set up appropriately um, and that like the job of a phase one trial is to make sure that things are safe for the patient. And so I orient them, get them framed that way and say, it's like, your safety is paramount. Um, we need to make sure that if you're having a side effect, what is that side effect and how can we address it? Is it right. dangerous? We watch you very, very closely. And of course, we hope that it's going, the, the drug is actually going to help you. But that, can't be, that in fact, that is not the primary right. uh, interest of, of doing phase one trials. And right. so... If you don't really sort of try to hit that home and it's just like, oh, do you want us to try to help you? And then, you know, get the paper signed, um, then, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's not complete. Um, but again, I can understand how at a, you know, at, at that level of the, you know, that, 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 that core feeling on the inside of like what you're, you know, what we're doing, because of course we want people to be successful, of course. We want the, the tumors to melt away. Um, but we have to be careful about making sure that people understand, um, you know, what it is they're, they're, they're facing. Right. And, and, and that that is not, as you say, that's not the explicit purpose of a phase one trial. It would be great if it right. happens, and it does happen in some phase one trials, right. but not always, and in fact, rarely. And, 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 but I think what you're, what you're really saying that is, uh, sounds like, I mean, the distinction um, that you're raising, what's most important is that it matters to you that the patient understands the distinction. And I guess I would say people who do it wrong, in my experience, people who do it wrong 
it doesn't matter to them if the patient gets the distinction and they are happy to allow the patient to cherish the fantasy um, because it makes everyone's life easier because people sign up for the trial faster and they're coming in quicker. You know, you, it's quicker visit, you know, everything is shorter. Um, and so they allow the misconception, the hope um, to override, I think, the the nuanced way you put things. Sure, sure. So I, I mean, <clears throat> I mean, I can actually get on board with that. And, and I don't know, I'm feeling compelled to sort of like qualify it a little bit <laughs> by saying that like, Again, but th- and that's why I keep bringing up the, the, the core value thing and sort of like really, really wanting to help just because it's like, you know, I leave room for the fact that like to not take to not take the view that it's like exclusively about enrollment. I'm sure sometimes that is, you know, part of you know, that can be a problem. And, and, and I would assume and hope and, and I want to and actually I want to believe that like that's a very, very fraction of, of the situation. But like you said, it's it's. It's it, it's set up to be an issue because you have a lethal cancer. Yeah, the person has had multiple therapies, and it's you know it's it, it's it's actually you know it's actually very difficult. And, and actually, I'll just actually name I'll just name it in the room, and I'll say, okay, so this is a really hard concept um, to understand, but you know. Doing this new drug, giving you this new drug is about making sure that it's safe for other people. That's why there's low numbers of patients that actually mm-hmm. enroll in phase one's trials because we don't want tons of people getting this new drug all at once and we can't keep track of what's going on and, and people will have significant um, at, uh, problems with it, side effects, adverse events. And so I'll name like how difficult it is to to be able to tell them that it's it's all about safety and then i just hope that something right. good happens in terms of in, in terms of the cancer some of them are perfectly willing to sort of just focus on the chance that you know their cancer is going to be treated mm-hmm. and you know that's something that has been debated in the past in the literature right. you know we're we're willing to accept the fact that like if the patient acknowledge, if the person acknowledges that um, they're just holding on to that hope, that's per- that's also reasonable. Right. Um, it's not well. you know you your job is to be honest and to to give yeah. the I think the nuance. But at the end of the day, if somebody wants to hold on to one side of it more than the other, that's you know you're not your job's not to dash that on the rocks. Sure. Um, yeah. Absolutely. What it sounds like to me that I think is the most interesting thing about your career a bit your career redirection switch um is something that i um get into a lot with the fellows um and not just the fellows at OHSU but other people who are fellows who happen to or trainees who reach out to me um i guess i'd say that um and you know maybe adam is good about this too sifu um because you know when i was a student he talked to me a lot about about these kinds of issues but i guess this is the the, the thing that i think you very it's very difficult to get somebody to give to you, mm-hmm. which is a sounding board to let you figure out what you want to do. Oh, you know, absolutely. it's okay. it's the it's the hardest thing is to is to give somebody a sounding board. You know, whenever I talk to fellows and I and especially when they're making the 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 jump, which is they're two years into fellowship, they're one year to go, and they're thinking about where they're going to apply, and and there's so much inertia that says, oh. Just stay, stay on, 
Stay on mm-hmm. wherever you're at. Just stay. And what do you mm-hmm. do? You just do what you're doing, but just continue to do it. And then you switch from fellow to instructor or, um, you know, and then you get in the in the academic pipeline queue. And 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 what what's the research you can do? Well, of course, there's not, um, you know, you could work in a laboratory, but usually people who are set in the lab, they're not the ones talking to me, but it's mostly the people who are going to be trialists. You're going to stay there. You're going to pick one disease. You're going to work on that. You're going to be a trialist. You're going to be apprenticed to be a trialist. I mean, that's the the, the final, you know, that's the common path. Sure. And then you sit this person down and you ask, you know, you really want to get a sense of, you know, what are the parts of oncology they like and what don't they like? What tumor types are they interested in? What ones are they less interested in? Do they like benign heme or not? Do they like a variety or no variety? Like to specialize expertise as you were alluding to, or are they willing to have, um, you know, sort of the fun of, um, or the excitement of constantly switching? Um, where do they want to live? Where's their family? What's important to them in their life? What kind of work-life balance are they looking for? Do they like to do a lot of writing or do they like to do a lot of talking to people? I mean, you know, you get a sense of all these things. And I don't know, my job is not to answer the question what everyone should do, obviously, that's not my role, but my role is to like, you know, talk them through like, oh, let me tell you about my friend Andre, let me tell you about my other friend and what his life's like, let me tell you about somebody I know. And, um, you know, I'm not trying to, I mean, honestly, I don't want to say I don't care. No, I do care that like, you know, like the only reason I'm talking to them is because I care about them. Usually it's like, you know, the fellows that seek me out are fellows that, you know, we're we're friendly to each other. We get along well. But I guess I'd say sure. I don't have skin in the game of what their choice is, but I'm glad to see when people come back to me, like a couple people came back to me recently and they're like, oh yeah, I'm three years in practice now and I'm loving it. I love every minute of it. Um, yeah. I guess my question to you is, um, I don't know. Do you feel like that's, I mean, I mean, it's so easy when people, when all these people go on Twitter and they say, oh, mentor, 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 this person, I'm going to mentor this person, mentor this person. I mean, what I always see is people saying like, oh, giving them research projects and all this stuff. And I'm like, that's, you know, that's CV building. That's not really mentoring somebody, which means you let them decide what they want to do. And you just kind of give them space and let them talk it out. Um, Anyway, what does this make you think about? I, I've got no question for you other than, you know, what, what, am I, what am I raising in your mind? So, I mean, <clears throat> so, I mean, I guess it's easiest to talk about, like, my personal experience. Mentorship seems to be hard in that, like, I, you know, I, I don't know. Like, I've had a couple of good mentor, mentors, and um, one of, you know, I'm only willing to mention one because it's sort of, like, not within the context of my medical career. So my undergraduate organic chemistry professor, Louis Leota. And mm. it was one of those things where it's just sort of like, he, there, he sort of like led me to a place, but it was because I was, I was reaching. So, um, and I think he could tell, and you know, I'm in organic chemistry and I'm like completely engaged and I seem to enjoy it. And, um, and so, uh, you know, it, it turned into, oh, come work in my lab and apply for this uh, Pfizer grant to do your research. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, you know, time I was just sort of stunned. And, you know, the, you know, we always talk about like imposter syndrome and, and, you know, I, you know, I mentioned earlier about like where I was coming from, where sort of like higher ed was new and like trying to figure out how to navigate that. And when someone sort of matter of factly just says, like, they have no question about whether you can do something or not. That was that like blew me away. It's 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 you know I go back to uh, my college once in a while and 
and and talk to students and um and such that like and I always even get emotional about it because like it's you know it makes a difference and it, you know it's hard because like you said you like you want to be guidance you I, I don't think that it should be which I think we've made jokes about how it's sometimes can be think of it as something like you're just making a person in your image or something and um yes and that's to me now, not, that's not the answer that's not what you're doing answer that may like actually in terms of like career success it actually works right so it's just sort of like you give them you you imbue them with all the stuff that you have um if you were successful and then they get to get it was like but did they actually get what they they actually wanted yes that's the question right that's the question yeah so so and then so anyway so i'll i'll speed this up and and say that like you know I've learned that like I've had to just sort of figure stuff out like you know you know I mentioned it's like this is not the first time I've like changed my mind um you know I transferred colleges I mm. uh, switched specialty I originally matched in general surgery and did that for two years mm. and what I was realizing in what I realize now is just you know I'm the type of person where like I actually have to get an idea of like what I'm doing a better no more than an idea of what I'm doing before I can sort of make a commitment and and that means so so that means that like you know when I was doing surgery it felt right um it was unexpected in terms of me liking surgery um or liking it for real um in a real way where you like commit and do a sub i uh, a sub internship and everything. And when I did the sub internship, I was just like, oh no, this confirms what I want. But it was, you know, a year in, it's like, uh, I don't know. I was like, I love, like, I, I actually still missed the operating room, but I didn't think the training was worth coming out on the other end, the type of person that I thought I was going to come out on the other end as, um, just so that I could operate. Um, so I needed to go through that, and that actually, I, you know, it's easy to say right now uh, in 2020, uh, you know, in hindsight, that I needed that experience to sort of put me in the position uh, where I am now. I just have to believe in right. that. Um, right. No, I think, um, yeah. I've just been sort of really doing my best to try to get at what I actually want. We had just discussed previously that, you know, I had, I, you know, I figured out what I actually wanted. Right. <laughs> so that I could then, you know, that was important because like, even when I was on the interview trail, it made it very easy to separate the wheat from the chaff in terms of what I wanted. Right. You know, you talk about it like you, I mean, you're, it almost sounds like you feel, and I don't know if you feel this way or not, but it almost sounds like to me, you feel like it took you a while to get there. But from my vantage, yeah, but from my vantage, you got there decades before other people I know. And so what do I mean by that? Uh, Okay. Because um, I guess I would say, um, you know, a while back in my life, I knew somebody who was really bad at leadership. And this person was in a leadership role in my life. And this person was looking for another leadership job as leadership roles lend themselves to higher leadership roles. And I had studied this person and I noticed that this person did not enjoy leadership. This person did not want to be in the role of leadership. And this person did not do a good job at leadership because this person was obviously not engaged and not doing the work of leadership. And so 
once I was talking to this person and I said, you know, you have a lot of things that I see bring you genuine joy. Thing X, thing Y, thing Z. I see it in your eyes. It brings you joy. And I noticed that you're also doing this extra thing called leadership. I notice it doesn't appear to be bringing you joy. You appear that you don't want to do it. You don't like it. And yet I notice you continue to doggedly pursue it. So why is that? And then this person told me uh, basically the usual BS you hear in a job interview, which is like why they want to, you know, I want to help younger people do better and blah, blah, blah. I was like, oh gosh, okay, okay, easy, easy, Tiger. I'm not, I'm not hiring, buddy. I'm not hiring. Um, so I don't know. What, what's my takeaway message is that, you know, being a leader is, is, is a brass ring. It's a ring on the table, running a physician scientist, running a lab. It's a brass ring. It's mm -hmm. a ring that at some point in your training, somebody's going to say, you ought to wear that ring. That's a ring you got to go chase. Go chase that ring. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then at some point you ask yourself, do I want to wear that ring? And you're like, I don't. I don't want to wear that ring. I'm not good at wearing that ring because I don't care about that ring. What do I actually like to do? It's, I think it's the hardest thing in the world to say what you actually like to do. Um, I, you know, um, I like to think that the major, actually, I do know it's the case. I would say, I would say like, you know, I've got, I get my life set up in a way that like my work life, 90% of my work life is things I enjoy doing because, you know, anytime somebody brings me a project that I don't enjoy doing, I, uh, you know, I get all nervous and I weasel out of it. Um, and uh, I do that so I can take on projects I do enjoy doing and working on. Yeah. And, and, you know, every project I do, I'm not like doing it because, I mean, I, I don't really care about you know, especially at this point in my career, what do I care about where I publish another paper? I don't care. Um, but right. what I care about is I want to know the answer to that question because sometimes um, that's a very useful thing to have the answer to, right, at your fingertips and nobody has the answer. Um, okay, and then what do I do? I'm not even, I mean, like I'm one foot in an oncology department and two and a half feet in a biostats department. I mean, epi biostats, you yeah. know, I, I really am doing something different than I think a lot of people. And um uh, but anyway, I just did it because I always, at every step of the way, I tried to figure out what do I actually want to do and shirk all other duties until I could do what I want to do. Um, so anyway, so I guess my question to you is, um, I don't know, it, I don't think it took you that long because look at this other person who's chasing leadership roles and they took, a, and they're still, they're never, I don't think they're going to, in their whole, before they retire, they're not going to realize they didn't actually want to do that. Okay, so yeah, I'm caught off guard by that because like, I guess, I don't know if it's solipsistic, but like, I could only imagine that, I don't know, just based on, maybe it's because of the, the field that, that we're in and the path that I've been on that makes me feel as though everyone else has it pretty figured out pretty right, well. Right, right. And so yeah. like, I, think, I think I actually, you know, have that sense. Um, you know, sort of based on my background and, and anyway, I mean, it's just, it's just how I feel. So that's why it's actually a little bit surprising to me. Um, but I think maybe my threshold for frustration regarding where I was going was really, really, um, really low. Um, and mm. that's what forced me to be able to be clear because I was just like, you know, it just, yeah, it doesn't make sense to me to be doing something that, or, or be, it's better to say that like, you know, we've talked about this in terms of like having a pie and sort of like, you know, what chunk of the pie do you spend, you know, spend time doing the things that you actually want to do and making sure that it's proportioned 
appropriately. And I'm, you know, and I'm perfectly willing to, you know, I don't uh, throw the baby out with the bathwater in terms of sort of like, oh my God, I, you know, like, even like, you know, you talk about like going through training and sort of like, oh my God, like the thing is like, oh, I don't like writing notes or something like that. It's like, who cares? It's like, yeah, get over <laughs> that, right? Yeah. Whatever. It's like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily care for it. I'd rather be at the bedside, whatever. But it's just something that you just, you know, put your head down and do. Um, and so anyway, I, the, that must have driven me to sort of like get it figured out and at least for myself so that I can feel like I'm like on some sort of path um, um, and getting closer to, to, to making sure that I'm like developing the things that I think that I'm good at, especially um, because otherwise this, I mean, honestly, frankly, it's like, you know, what are we doing? Right. If we're, if we're not sort of like really trying to develop ourselves um, in a way that's going to maximize um, how we impact uh, our patients um, and in society, like it's, I don't know, that's, that's important to me. I think that, you know, one of the things you said in that um, was this idea that it seems as if other people have it figured out sooner, mm -hmm. at a, at, I, presumably at, an, at an, a younger chronological age. And I would sure. say that I think, in fact, you know, it probably is the case that at a younger chronological age, a lot of people settle into the track that they carry with, you know, carry through for the rest of their life. I think that might be true. Um, however, I believe they don't have it figured out. And my informal surveys and interviews of people, you know me, I like to ask a lot of questions. Uh, my in question. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of questions. <laughs> people don't see it coming, but I ask a lot of questions and I get answers, especially when people don't want to answer me. You know how I like to do that. Um, especially in a one-on-one -on -one setting where not when we're recorded, um, I can really get the truth. So here's what I've done a little surveys of. I believe that a lot of people have career dissatisfaction. It's high. Mm. It's, ep it's epidemic. It's COVID-19 high. It's got an R not of four and it's spreading like wildfire career dissatisfaction. It's through the roof. All I hear is dissatisfaction. I would say dissatisfaction comes in many flavors. One flavor is, why don't I have that? Which is, why don't I have that? Grant, oral presentation, this, that, the other, whatever. Whatever that is that your colleague has that you don't have, that's a dissatisfaction. Um, the other thing is, is um, lack of praise, lack of reward. People feel working very hard. Lots of hours spent on things that, you know, really don't get looked at by a lot of people or don't impact a lot of people. And, you know, back to what you were saying, which is what is the goal of oncology is like, yeah, we want to have an impact on the lives of people with cancer. I think a lot of people increasingly feel that they're playing a game. There's a game that their life is stuck in and there's like promotions and hurdles and titles yeah. and names. Um, and the more they play that game, um, the less they're doing the thing they really want to do, which is navigating and helping people have better lives. And then the less they play that game and the more they do what they want to do, the less they're rewarded. Um, and so I think dissatisfaction, at least in the academy, is really, really high. I think it's, my guess is, um, in some private settings, it is lower when the private setting runs really smoothly. Um, but, you know, I think, it's dis I think there's some dissatisfaction and grass is greener in the private settings too. So I guess I would say that and part of the reason that happens is that I think people, as you note, they're in their track, they're on their train track at a younger chronological age, but 
they're unwilling to move that train to a different track, no matter how they feel. And so they're just going to stuck it and suffer on their track. And it's much better, I think, to take longer to put your train on a track and pick the right track. Yeah, I mean, and, and no, for sure, definitely the um, and 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 I and I just really want to acknowledge that it's hard. And and one thing that I want to note is that um, so leaving surgery was even though I knew it was the right decision, it was sort of like not without like the feeling. Uh, can I, I just tell you like the feeling of failure that mm. it was like overwhelming and. So the and, daily do- so you missed your daily dose of abuse every day is that what you're <laughs> Absolutely and so it's like one of those things where I don't think that I mentioned before is just like you know that was initially like when I was even when I was a, a little kid and it was just sort of like oh I'm going to be a cardiac surgeon that's what I would tell people and um uh and so when I realized I was like oh my god that's not going to happen mm. um then it's just like, I mean, that's why I can, there was a, <laughs> I had a colleague that in general surgery who, this was one of the things that actually helped me solidify the decision. He said that, like, I said, well, are you happy? Because we were talking about, you know, I was, you know, getting some feedback on like, oh, about switching and to another specialty and that sort of thing. And he said that he had faith that when he was all done. He would that, be happy. Yeah, and I was like, <laughs> "Wow, check please." Um, <laughs> Faith, like, I will be. It's, it's, really, it's, it's just one of those things where it's just sort of like, "Oh, well, that's not where I'm at with this." It's just like you know, it. I need to really figure out how I'm going to be of service to people um, in the best way possible. Mm-hmm. I don't want all, like to be again, be mired in doing lots of things and experiencing certain things that you that are not good, and they sort of like actually change you so that you're not performing the best that you can. So um, it's just not, it, it's, it's, it's not worth doing. And also it's, it's going to be bad for your patients in the future. for sure. Yeah. I think when people say things like I have faith, I will someday be happy. It's because they're going after that brass ring. Um, <laughs> I think, I mean, you raise an interesting question because, um, you know, which is like, what did you tell people you wanted to do as a child? And I guess I would say that I don't think I really had a sense, like, like I really, you know, I, I think if you asked me on, on, you know, when I was three, it would be one thing and four would be another thing. And, you know, it was always shifting. Yeah. Um, and, and I guess I would say that um, there are some things about my current job that I find um, um, interesting, which is that I like to think about things in, um, you know, I, I hope a creative and novel way and try to see things as objectively as I can. I mean, I strive for that. Although people, you know, criticize me and they believe that I have some agenda. I have no agenda. What do I, you know, you know me, I don't have an agenda. You know, I, <laughs> uh, whether we're at a dinner party talking about something that we're not going to talk about on this podcast, but you know, you know, cause it, mm-hmm. it, it over, you know, I, I'll always have an opinion and I'll tell you what I think. Um, yeah. but you know, there, okay. So, but I guess I'd say that it's interesting to me. I ended up in a field where, you know, the way in which my mind works and the way I like to think about things, um, inevitably rubs people the wrong way. What do I mean? Um, it means that like, I'll have a view on an issue that there's gonna be a lot of people who disagree with me on. And we talked about a couple of mammography, this other soft targets. We could talk about genome sequencing, you know, all these things. Okay. I'm always running afoul of some group. (laughs) (laughs) So it strikes me as interesting because there are some fields where that doesn't happen. 
like you could take a field like, um, I think, like mathematics, for instance. Mathematics is a field where there are a bunch of people thinking cleverly and creatively and novelly. Um, and at the end of the day, my understanding is people may um, disagree with, you know, partially completed proofs. But once somebody proves something, that's it. They did it, you know, and there's no dispute, right? There's no, I don't like that person's tone. <laughs> you know, there's no, there's none of that. Go on. Okay. So what what I think is interesting is that um, my thesis is that not every um, pursuit um, has the same risk of running afoul of people, but medicine and social pursuits tend to have more of that than I think theoretical and abstract pursuits like physics and math um, do. I mean, there might be people, you might not, you might, I mean, there might be a mathematician everyone thinks is a jerk or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, that, that's not what I'm getting. I mean, that's not the criticism I get. Is people disagree with my opinion on my area of expertise, right? And I don't think that mm -hmm. happens for mathematicians when they're, when they're steeped in it that way. So I guess if I'm ever think about like the grass is greener, you know, think it would be it would be nice to be in a field where you could really try to advance the discussion and not get negative energy, just get positive energy. That's what I'm trying to say. Hmm. I mean, uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm not going to know about like the particularly about like outside of the field, but I actually can I can see why, you know, um. So a lot of the things that come across definitely come across as personal sort of seem to be integrated into like how we engage with one another um, in our fields. Um, and then, I, yeah, it actually makes sense that like even, you know, I, I don't know, things that make it easier, even like talking about what's going on right now, if we should go back to COVID for a quick second and sort of, you know, the uh, disparities that happen in terms of infection rates and like, can you imagine like that's a landmine of yeah. place to be when sort of talking about like how to address the issue in the short term and the long term because i remember you know one of the earlier conversations regarding um COVID infection and the disproportionate um death rates um in the black population and they were talking from talking to the senator in, in louisiana and you know postulating why you know, this might be the case and sort of seems to be, and, and there seemed to be a issue with realizing like, what do you do in the short term versus the long term right. um, with this issue? Um, anyway, the point is, is that I can see why this might actually create the substrate for uh, bigger disagreements or, or you know, more vicious disagreements for sure. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, COVID has unleashed so many, I mean, I think the disparities is one where probably there's a lot of agreement that there are terrible disparities in there and that they're exacerbated by COVID. COVID is just, sure. but you know, but I, but I, but one of the things that irritates me about it is that, I mean, obviously the disparities were wrong for decades long before sure. COVID, Co right? Yeah. Right. And so to act like, you know, now the disparities, I mean, the disparities have been a problem and, and, and there is, I mean, and I, de I it's a problem I care deeply about and I think it can be fixed. Um, and uh, I mean, I, I think sometimes some of these fixes are going to have to do with moving money in, in ways that will make some people annoyed. But that's how you really fix a lot of problems in, in government. You got to be you got to take a big chunk of money and move it in a good way. And we're good at moving big chunks of money in a bad way. That's something that are that we're very good at as a society. To people who already have 
money sometimes. Exactly, exactly. The moving money to people who already have money. That's a good that's a that's a good political way to move money. But to move money and capital to people who don't have it, that's the right that's the courageous way to move money. It's a lot harder to do. Anyway, that's that's the real podcast that I, I don't have yet. But maybe someday I'll have um <laughs> Plenary session uh, politics. <laughs> then I'll then I'll have to really I'll have to really have my own shop by then. But um, all right, so this was a great discussion. Um, you know, as always, it's a pleasure to talk to you and pick your brain. Um, we covered so many topics that I wanted to cover, and a few I didn't want to cover, <laughs> as is always the case. <laughs> I guess um, you know anything anything that you want to close with anything that we felt like. Uh, felt like we left out no definitely. left out no because there's always other podcasts um there's always other podcasts how many of the plenary sessions have you listened to i don't know the answer is not all of them oh, <laughs> of course not what do you mean of course not <laughs> well on that positive note we conclude our interview <laughs> Of course not. <laughs> We're keeping that in. Yeah, the tr the real the real admissions. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on, Andre. It's always a pleasure. You've been listening to season two of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klosner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes Store. Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening. <laughs>